Let's move into our time of teaching and preaching now. Uh, and go ahead and gr- find in your Bibles Hebrews chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, no sweat, no worries. Uh, you could grab one just like this in the pew in front of you and turn to page 1009, and you'll be right where I am, following along right where I am. And we're going to be taking this section of Hebrews verse by verse. But I'd like to begin this morning by just asking you to recall in your minds somebody who impacted your faith early on, somewhere in the past. Somebody who is maybe a leader in the church. Maybe, and by leader in the church, I don't mean necessarily like the preacher, but I mean uh, maybe a Sunday school teacher. Somebody who impacted your life. Who you could think back to them and you could look at that person and you could say, you know what, I should grow up to be like them. Anybody like that for you? Think about that. I hope there is somebody that you can think of like that. Somebody says, no, I thought I heard a no. And that made me sad, but... Um, the person I think of is uh, my childhood preacher, Mel Harold. Maybe some of you might even know him. Um, he's been in, in the Michigan area for a long time. And he is the person who I look at, and when I say, this man was a good preacher, this is the person who I kind of want to grow up into. And I want to tell you my story about him, if that's okay. How many of you are prodigal children? You wandered kind of, you're, you're kind of the black sheep of the, anybody feel like the black sheep of their family? Let's get some black sheep hands up. Be honest. Because that's me. Thank you. I love to see that. Yeah, I, I was a person who, um, you know, just uh, drove my parents nuts. Uh, they drove me nuts too, though, so it was fair. Like, as soon as I left college, it was like the next week, I did what I had always wanted to do, get my ears pierced. Yeah. But I didn't want just, like, ears pierced, like, you know, just, like, pierced, pierced. But I wanted, like, gauged earrings, not like big fat ones, but just like a little, something that looked like manly earrings. I don't know if that's a thing, but you might kind of know what I mean. Some of you are like, ugh, I think less of him already. That's all right. So I go to a tattoo parlor where they take a needle and they puncture my ear and they pop out some of the extra skin. Well, I mean, it's not extra skin. I needed it. <laughs> they popped out some of it so they could feed in a thicker a thicker earring. So I have both of these things in. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't, I, and I don't go back to, I don't go back home for some time. But when I did go back home, my first concern was, what is Mel going to think about my earrings? What is he going to say? And I will never forget my encounter with him. I remember walking up to him to say, and it had been maybe a month or two since I had seen him, and he uh, shook my hand. And he looked at me, and he looked at my ears, and he looked kind of like this, and he looked kind of like this. And I, I'm, I'm so nervous. Like, this is the only person I really, like, I, I want him to, you know, and I, and I said, I said, yeah, you know, what do you think? And he looked at me, put both hands on my shoulders, and he said, you can put a bone through your nose, and I will still love you. And that meant a lot to me. Now, I don't have them in currently, nor, nor do I think they'd fit anymore. They took skin out so I can get stuff in there. But um, that was moving to me. That was a kind of acceptance that I needed from the leadership, the people that I looked at and said, I want to be like them. Um, because bones through your nose or earrings through your ear doesn't have any bearing on pre- preaching the gospel unless it becomes a hindrance. Um, and so I, I, I think about... 
uh, think about good leadership in the church being one in which the things that are primary are the things that we hold on to and the things that are secondary, the things that are opinion are the things that we can kind of play a little loose with. Because I tell you what, I know Mel and I tell you he did not like those earrings. I know that. Um, But he still saw potential in me. And that guides this section of the text. If you look at uh, Hebrews 13, everything from this chapter rolls from the first verse. And the first verse is the hardest line in all of Scripture. It's only three words, and it's the hardest thing to do, and yet every single one of us can capture the idea. But living it out is so difficult. It says this, let brotherly love continue. Can you love each other despite your differences? Can you love each other despite your differences? And that uh, fed through last week and what's going to continue this week. It governs the next verse, verse 7. We'll begin reading there. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is the most intimidating verse to anyone who is in leadership. All the way from the elders, myself, all the way down to those of you who hold babies and wipe butts. And I know that you think that teaching Sunday school or holding babies in the nursery might not be the most important thing. But I tell you, you are dead wrong. It is highly important. I remember my Sunday school teachers. I remember their faces and I remember their names. And my faith is in part due to the fact that they put up with snot-nosed brats on Sunday morning faithfully week after week after week. And if those people are a part of your life, if you can look back in the past and remember, oh yeah, I remember Ginny Leakin uh, putting up with me and my two cousins uh, in Greenville Church of Christ. If I can remember that, I should hold on to that and I should let that continue forward as I pick up the faith that was handed to me and carry it on. He says, imitate those people, remember them. And you'll remember with me that especially remembrance plays a key piece of covenant keeping in the books of the law in the Old Testament, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, especially in Deuteronomy, Moses says again and again to the people, remember the Lord your God. Now, are they, is he worried that they'll forget that we have a God? No, right? He's not worried that they're going to forget that they have a God. He's not going to worry that they're going to forget that they have a covenant. He's not worried that they're going to forget that they have priests and feasts and all of these trappings that go along with, with the law. He's worried that they will forget to keep it. Remembrance has in mind keeping it. You can't remember it if you don't do it as well. And so when, when Paul says here, remember your leaders, he's not asking them to remember, oh yeah, we have some leaders in our church. He's saying, Imitate them. Make sure that what they are doing, you are doing as well. And if you're a leader here today, that should make your boots quake a little bit. It's a very serious thing. And one of the wonderful things I can say over the past five years that Laura and I have been here is that every leader that we have known here in this church, from Sunday school all the way to eldership, I know this, even the people who I disagree with, and even those who disagree with me, I can say this about every leader I have known in this church, they take seriously this call. They take seriously this call. So you can look to your leaders, and you can remember them, 
those who spoke the word of God to you, and you can imitate them. And this is such an important piece of uh, such an important piece of what Paul is talking about throughout Scripture. He he says different things. I'll give you a couple here. The first is this from First Corinthians. He says, uh, "For though you might have ten thousand guardians in Christ, those people who are kind of watching over you, you do not have many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, I became your father." Paul's the one who came there, planted the church, preached it, grew it, all that. He preached the gospel to him. So he says, "I appeal to you, then, be imitators of me. Like look at me as I look to Christ and follow me." That's what Paul's motivation is. That's what his, his direction is toward. And so they can look at him and they can imitate him. Here's some other places where he, he says that. Um, another passage from Ephesians 5 where he says to look directly to God. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Look to God like a father. And how, how you know, you see this sometimes. I see this. Uh, I love seeing like Zach helping with uh, communion. He's kind of following along behind Ben as Ben sort of leads him through. And now he's kind of doing it. I remember when he walked with you and now we see Zach. I'm embarrassing him. He loves attention. Stand up, Zach. Let everybody see. I'm just kidding. Don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, he did it. There he is. Good. Or Levi and Courtney coming up here last week and helping. Which are di- different examples we have of people who, who follow behind. And in the same way, we're looking to God, God our Father. And we're called to imitate him and to imitate Jesus, the, the face of God on earth. He says, be imitators of God as children. And live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews has made very much of this point. Hebrews chapter 6, for instance, says this, And we want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end. And that's what this is all about. Like you all, many of you, been baptized in the faith, you're, you're moving forward in your faith, and the danger is always in front of you that you might give up on it. And what your leadership is trying to do is trying to stand there in the gap and continue to coax and pull and prod and encourage and lift up and walk with because we want to see every single one of you standing together before Christ Jesus in the presence of all the saints and the angels and God himself, right? Right? That's what we want, to stand to, stand to the end. And that takes endurance because trouble's on the way. Trouble is before us. Trouble is behind us. There's plenty of trouble for today. And only Christ will see us through. Christ and men and women who come around us to lead us and to provoke us on. So that's the hope, right? To the very end. So that you might not become sluggish, lazy, slow, give up. But rather imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Don't you want the promises? In order to get the promises, we must hold fast must continue on. Paul preached a great sermon through chapter 11 talking about uh, the name after name after name of those who have gone before us. And so, my brothers and sisters, what I'm encouraging you to do and to see is that Christian leadership is of the highest priority. Both to those of you who are leaders, I encourage you to continue to take it seriously. To those of you who are a part of it, who are being led, I want to encourage you to pay attention to those people who deserve to be in leadership. I've seen so many people come into leadership in the church because of who their family was or how often they showed up to Sunday morning services or, goodness gracious, how successful they were in the outer world. You can be a millionaire and a miserable cuss, right? 
Just because you're successful out there doesn't mean you'll be successful in here because Jesus out there did not look very successful, did he? So when Paul calls together people and he says, listen, to Titus and to Timothy, listen, you, you, you need to bring forward men in, uh, of, of good repute. He, he gives them a long list of things that they ought to do. He talks about their faith and how it should be uh, full of love and they should be hospitable and they should not be given over to being quarrelsome. They shouldn't be violent, but they should be gentle. They should be people who don't love money. And if you look at a leader and you see those qualities in them or you see the bad qualities in them, you want to say to the church, that's not our leader. I don't care who their daddy is. I don't care how much money they have in their bank account. What is their character And how is their life of faith? Can it be imitated? And this is why James says not many of us should consider ourselves teachers because there's a higher account that's going to come on your elders, your deacons, your Sunday school teachers, your your Bible school teachers, your your leaders. And so we need to be very serious about these things. And his next line, verse 8, comes a pivot point. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's an important line. It seems like a non sequitur, but it is, it follows completely and, and functions like, like a pivot point because on the one hand, your leaders who are imitating Christ, Christ doesn't change. We have his life, his death, his resurrection. We have his way. We have it written in the scriptures. And so your leaders are, are to be following that and you are to be following them. Well, at the same time, Jesus' doctrine, his teaching also doesn't change. And that's what he's interested in in the next verses. In verses... Uh, Verse 9 there. He says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And so what he's saying is that there are teachings out there that are damaging to the soul. There are people out there whose whole mission in life is to teach you something that is not true. In fact, those people tend to be more devoted to their insanity and to their sin than people who are not. Their single-minded focus is to turn the church into a new direction, to move it to the side. They have a new teaching, a new idea. And this happens all the time. I was thinking, actually, today, as I was uh, working through this text again and praying for you, praying over all of this, I, was remembered, I remembered some time back in Tennessee this young couple who was just kind of coming back. They had a prodigal family, and they were just coming back to the faith, had a little one, and we'd been working with them in great success. And she found uh, some online preacher that she had listened to, and he had told her, if your church is a 501c3 church, leave that church because of all of these different things. Well, nearly every Every church is, I know many of you are like, I don't know what those numbers mean. It just means we don't have to pay taxes on the land, right? It's a tax-exempt status. If, you're, if, you're, if your church is that, then you need to leave. And so I, I talked with her, and I was like, well, there's some concerns that he has are very valid, and there's some things that are just bananas and off the wall, and we're not letting the government come in and tell us what to do. When has anyone ever told me what to do, right? Like, Plenty of people have you know, criticized, and there's plenty of pushback and things like that, but, but you know, we, we do our best to read from the scriptures and to proclaim it. Where do you see us going? Right? But she was so fixated on this new teaching that she had heard that they went off to la-la land. There's no church around them, no one to critique them, and I know them, and they are not attached to anything at all, not even scripture anymore. 
Because the goal of turning away is not to keep you tight to the word, tight to the church, tight to Jesus. The goal is to turn you to something new. And as soon as you get enamored with the new, it's like Black Friday, right? Like you, you don't go to just one store. How many of you guys went out for Black Friday? Come on now. Well, you know, you might have gone to one just one. Did you just go to Sam's Club? Scott's the one, you know, he went with a goal. But that's Scott. You know, targeted, and, that, and that's it. But like we, we get enamored with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. The same thing is true of teaching. And so he warns us here. In fact, I was uh, in a conversation with somebody about a false teacher that is emerging, very popular, very big, very new, very hip, very influential. And I was reminded of this text from Revelation chapter 2. But I have this against you. So this is Jesus speaking directly to the church. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now this is probably not an individual, maybe a body of teaching, but it might be an individual. Regardless, her name is probably not Jezebel. It's hearkening back to the Old Testament and the wicked figure of Jezebel from the Old Testament. But this Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and eat food sacrificed to idols. Those are the issues of that day. They may not be, they are sometimes the issues of this day, but not necessarily. But the unchanging Christ says to to John, and I will strike her children dead. Those who followed that false teaching, what what does it say? I will strike her children, those who follow her dead, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. That's serious business. I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to feel the weight of that. Who you follow matters. And that's the issue that's going on in this Hebrews church. We don't know the exact, the exact location of this church, but wherever it is, these people are being blown off course by people who have come in, interlocutors who have come in to lead them astray. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, why are you buying someone else's books? Why are you listening to their podcasts? Why are you listening to them on TV? Why are you following them on social media? You don't know them. You only know their persona. But your elders, your deacons, your preachers, your teachers, you sit next to them day after day after day, and you can see in them not only their teaching, but also their way of life. And that should be something you look at. At because that is meat and potatoes. And the other stuff is candy. And I love candy. Can I get a witness, church? Christmas cookies are coming. I can't wait. But if you eat that too much, you get... There's a couple of my... Sad? Fat? Is that what you said? Fat? Yes. Fat? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I was going for sick, but yes, fat also is true. (laughs) We need meat and potatoes. We need the common everyday, the good practices, the way of life. And it isn't always splashy. In fact, most of the time it's not splashy at all. When we get to the end of this text, we'll see it's not splashy at all. But it's good, and it's true, and it's pure. So hold fast to those things that matter and consider the way of life that is before you. That's why we have that gaudy uh, <laughs> uh, metal board with, with cut out snowflakes all over it that says next steps because we're trying to draw your eyes and attention. What is your next step? 
How are you going to plug into the real deep Bible teaching that we have here? Is it Sunday school? Is it a small group? How are you going to take that next step so that you are not led astray? Because being led astray is dangerous stuff. So there's a warning that sits in front of us. He moves on in the next section here in verses 10 and following. And this is, this is all hinging on Leviticus 4. Leviticus 4, if you take notes, Leviticus 4 is the backdrop for this if you, if you want to go back and read this. But in verse 10 he says, We have an altar from which those who serve, uh, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's really thick writing there, and there's a lot going on. And in case you're new to church and you're a little bit puzzled, that's all right. There's a learning curve to Scripture. And this is referencing back to Leviticus 4, where when, uh, when Dan does something wrong, as frequently he does, he goes to the, he goes to the priest, and he takes the, the sacrifice, the bull, and they go outside of the camp, and outside of the camp they burn it, and the sin is taken care of. It's atoned for outside of the camp so that Dan can go back into the camp as a holy, as a, as a newly made holy man and able to worship within the So that's the kind of, the, the liturgical backdrop, if you will, of that text. And what he then references is that Jesus likewise, so this is kind of the traditional, there's another place over here that sometimes, we're not entirely sure where Jesus was sacri- or, um, crucified, but this is one of the sites, here's another one. But it was outside of the wall. Jesus was taken outside of the camp, as it were, And there he was sacrificed for our sins. In fact, there he was raised um, for our justification. And there he ascended uh, to the right hand of the Father. And so what is being said then is that we, like Jesus, should go outside the camp. We are the people who have, he says, no lasting city. And that might not ring like a heavy bell to you because we don't think of cities as city-states. Um, This is very tied into kind of this concept of the city-state. Your loyalty, your community, your allegiance, your your financial stability, your market, your family, everything was built around this small regions that were cities the way that we might think of the state of Michigan. We have loyalty to the state of Michigan. I was rooting for Michigan. I don't care who won the Ohio or Michigan football game, but I wanted Michigan to destroy them just because it's Ohio, right? (laughs) No real reason. And the only thing I have against them is their state stinks, and it's horrible to drive through. I mean, it's just, there's no real reason there, right? But the same kind of loyalty that you have to a place for no real reason. They have have loyalty to places for real reasons. Like, this is your family, this is your economic, this this is your security. That city is your security. So when Paul says in this text, listen, we have no lasting city, he's striking at the very core of everything they believe about reality, about safety, about community, about their whole identity. It's tied into that city. And he says, we have nothing lasting in this plane of existence. We are like Jesus heading outside of the camp. And everyone in the camp says, hey guys, there's animals out there. It's dangerous out there. You might die out there, but you will remember with me that when they looked at Jesus, they saw what? A rebel or a fool? And they didn't like either. 
And so they poured scorn upon him. But we have something different. We speak, as Paul says, God's wisdom, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood that. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. If they had seen him for who he was, they wouldn't have crucified the Son of Glory. But, as it is written, what eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor human heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who loved him. And these things God has revealed to you. Because you see Jesus for who he is. And because of that, you are not wrapped up in the priorities of the city. But rather, as Bunyan says, we are leaving the city of destruction and on our way to the celestial city. We are setting aside all of the things that might be called worldly in order that we might gain that thing which is called eternal. That matters. And so we hold fast to that true, sound beautiful doctrine because we have as he says in chapter 12 of hebrews been called to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem where innumerable angels have come together in feastal procession and we are surrounded by the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven in god the judge of all and jesus christ the one who has redeemed us and made us perfect that is our calling that is where we are headed and so don't get sidetracked by all this other stuff but rather look to the leaders who are out front pursuing Christ most fiercely and say I will follow them as they follow Christ that make sense and so he brings it to a strong conclusion which I want to draw your attention to as we kind of wrap this, this, this time up in verses 15 and 16 so through him that is through Jesus Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I I love the practicality of that text, and I love the beauty of that text because many of you grew up in a church that communicated to you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that God is mostly ticked off at us and waiting to fry your soul in eternal flames. And that the Christian spends most of his or her time lamenting their sins and saying no to everything that looks like fun. Anybody resonate with that? And yet, what do we see out of all of this text? That he's got this long train of line that begins with this phrase, let brotherly love continue. Here are some applications, some things that we say yes to, some things that we say no to. Some things that we are discerning and some things that we are seeking. Some people that we are following. And when it comes down to it, he says this, let your sacrifice be one of praise. That doesn't sound like a God of wrath to me. Does it? A God who is angry and waiting to smite you? It sounds like a God who has bought and paid for you so that you might be a person of joy. If you are the person, so there are two things at work here, right? Uh, first thing, what should we do instead of sacrificing animals, which was how they would do it? And, and we have to understand that too. I have to come back to this again and again because I meet so many Christians who miss this. How many of you this week had the blessed opportunity of being in a house where at some point you said, 
That smells good. Anybody? It was what we call, here's Bible names for Bible things, a pleasing aroma. All that turkey smells good. All that stuffing smells good. It's something that smells good. In the same way, when the sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament, you lay the lamb upon the altar. And when we use the word altar, immediately our mind goes to like maybe religious things rather than like barbecue grills. But remember, the lamb is on the altar. They pour wine over the altar. They pour seasoning over the altar. They pour incense over the altar. And there's this burning aroma. And we would call that today a barbecue, right? Now, that's a little bit trite, but I hope it gets across the point that when the Bible says that there was a pleasing aroma, it isn't like God was like, oh yeah, something died. It was like, oh yeah, the people are feasting in my presence because that lamb is not going to stay there. It's coming off the altar and the priests are going to eat it together with their families so that they're provided for. And the people are going to eat it, both rich and poor. Those who brought bulls and those who brought birds all together are feasting together in the presence of the Lord. That's what it looks like. And so what does he say today? He says, listen, church, when you're following those people who are worthy of following, what should you be doing? You should be following in this kind of processional line where your lips are constantly declaring praise. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. You can't say that enough this week. And yet, how many of us have spent our week bellyaching and complaining? When they look at the church, do they see people who are in procession of praise? Who are stopping in that procession to do, what does he say? Good works. And to share what they have. That's a good kind of people. A people of thanksgiving, a people of praise. He says this church is doing it, only it needs to do it more. I say our church is doing it, but we need to do it more. There needs to be an increase in our sacrifice to God. And what an awful sacrifice I mean, what a stingy, grumpy God who wants you to praise him. He's asking so much of you, isn't he? Do good work, share what you have. My goodness, he couldn't ask more of you if he wanted to, could he? Right? I mean, we can do this. When they look at us, they should see people who are happy, even in the darkest times. In fact, that's the most puzzling thing at all. I think of the passage from Acts chapter 17 where you have Paul and Silas and they've been beaten and they've been bloodied and they've been shamed and they've been stripped and they've been thrown into a dungeon and they haven't been given food and they haven't been given clothes and they're probably shackled to the floor. They don't have toilets. There's, this, is, this is the worst situation they could be in and we know that at midnight, instead of complaining and crying, they were singing praises to God and the whole jail was silent because that's weird. Be that weird person. Be that weird person. Find in your soul to see how God is changing and transforming. He ends this section kind of in a, in a couching it, going back to the way he had, was talking earlier. He says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Those of you who are in leadership, you will have to give an account. Those of you who are a part of the following or you're listening to the teaching, let them do this with joy and not without groaning. Don't make your leaders regret being leaders. For that doesn't do any good for anyone, does it? 
if they can't wait to be done with whatever position they're in, that doesn't help the church at all. Uh, We are imperfect, all of the leaders here. We are imperfect people who are passionate about you and passionate about God. And there's about 20,000 things that you could find wrong with Scott. <laughs> Paul's behind him, but you're behind him, so I didn't go right to him. But, I mean, there's, there, there's all kinds of things that you can find wrong with me and with everybody else who is in leadership. You might say, well, that, you know, I would have taught it differently than Steve did this morning. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we do imperfectly, but, but don't make it a, a difficult thing to be in leadership here. Make it a joy. Um, continue it as a joy because it has been a joy uh, for me and, and I know for, for a lot of the leaders as well. Well, let me end with some very practical advice then, okay? Let's, uh, let's, let me send you off with something. And these are my three things that I want to send you off with. And is these three things. First, consciously praise God for the worst part of your day. I want you to think at the end of the day, so this is your exercise, I want you to do this week for me. Just see what it feels like. And I want you to tell me next week, hey, I did this, and uh, here's what I think. I, I'm just curious. I've never done this before. And so this is, this is a practice that I want to do. At the end of the day, what I want you to do is I want you to consciously think, man, what was the worst part of my day? And I want you to praise God for it. Even if it's just a begrudging, thank you, God, you saw me through marriage. I don't know. what. <laughs> Kids, I don't know, whatever it is, work, uh, whatever it is, I thank you, God, for seeing me through this. I want you to praise God for the worst part of my day. Can you do that? You can do that. Good. I want you to consciously pray for the leaders of this church. I know for a fact, because I'm with them, that they are consciously praying for you, constantly praying for you. I want you to find a directory. I want you to look at the elders and the deacons and the trustees and, and the Sunday school, especially the Sunday school teachers. Let me tell you a t- thing I heard this morning. I was listening to this. There's an artist that I follow. And she just published a book, um, and, but she's a, a, a rapper and spoken word poet, some of these things. And she was talking about her coming to faith and leaving a, a, a very promiscuous and homosexual lifestyle. And the interviewer is talking with her, and she said, I was just in my room one night, and it hit me, my life, I'm living it wrong. And he said, well, you weren't listening to a preacher. Like, what sparked that? And she said, I remembered going to Sunday school. You need to pray for our Sunday school teachers because they are investing in the most important part of this church, its future, right? So pray for our leadership. Find a way to thank them, even if it's just give Cheryl a hug for spending time with the first graders. Thank you. Whatever it is, give an elder a hug and say thank you for praying. Whatever it is, find a way to consciously thank those people who are investing and praying for you to make their leadership a joy so that they can bring you joy so that you can have more joy and then they can have even more joy than that. And then we can be a church that walks in procession of praise and good works. How's that sound? Sounds good. That sounds good. As we come to a time of conclusion, we'll have our elders off to the right and off to the left. Uh, if you have a prayer need, if you have, um, I don't know, anything at all that you need to bring and talk with somebody about, there's an opportunity to pry, to pry not to pry, to pray, <laughs> and, to, uh, and to find some good help and some loving people. Let's stand as we sing this last song.